Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. The last time I recorded an episode, it was full summer. It was green and lovely. We were talking about Clara and the special nourishment of the sun. And now I'm recording from a uh, crisp, not a, the first crisp November day. I'm recording on November 1st. And the leaves are falling. If you hear a gentle buzz in the background, that is the neighbor who decided to use the leaf blower. Everything is golden and cool and lovely. And with the change in season, I am happy to announce a new season of Speaking with Joy as well. In a few minutes, I will get started with our first episode, which is the conversation with Christopher Tin about his new album, The Lost Birds, which is gorgeous, and you should go listen to it immediately. Um, And we had a wonderful conversation about elegies and the environment and hope. Um, But first, I wanted to give you a few updates on um, Speaking with Joy and on various projects in my own life. So as many of you may know, if you've listened to my podcast for a while, I started this podcast while I was doing my PhD. And last year, I finished my PhD and uh, started kind of working full time. And I've continued doing the podcast, but it's been interesting kind of figuring out a rhythm for what worked for this new season of my life. And um, as I've gone along, I've been more and more sure that I wanted to continue the podcast, but wasn't sure kind of what rhythm would make sense for doing that. So I think I finally landed on one, uh, fingers crossed, we'll see, which is that I'm going to start posting one podcast a month um, and hopefully making it something that is interesting and deep and intriguing and maybe kind of a combination. So I might do an interview with someone. I might do kind of some of the more classical stuff I did where I picked a theme and I looked at some art that dealt with that theme. Um, But you can expect from here on out one deep, long episode a month. And um, I hope that you will enjoy that. Um, It feels like a doable rhythm for me. And I'm excited to keep recording podcasts because I really enjoy the, the conversations that we have around art and culture and theology. One other thing I wanted to alert you to is that I have started a Substack. Now, to certain listeners, that will that will mean something. And then for a lot of you, you will think, what in the world is a Substack? So a Substack is basically a, a newsletter, um, but it also kind of functions as, as a website. So the reason I've started a Substack is for the last few years, one of the best things about writing and doing the podcast has been actually that I made a Patreon. And I don't just mean that it was helpful because it helps support my work. I also mean it was helpful because it created this whole kind of community of people that I could bounce ideas off of, that I could um, explore kind of themes with and do kind of pre-writing on projects that I was working on. And, um, and we also, we did book clubs together. And one of the most fun things is that I did a, a weekly Saturday post where I shared uh, anything interesting, amusing, and insightful that I encountered throughout the week. And that became a really life-giving thing, really nourished my writing. I really enjoyed getting to kind of know far-flung friends um, through that. 
And I've been thinking about what would kind of make sense in this new season, um, especially as I'm doing more writing work. And one of the things that I realized is that as I am working on several projects, some academic, some popular, and I'm always keeping notes and quotes from passages of books that I like. And I started thinking, how could I actually share that with people? How could I kind of invite people into the writing process? So I'm starting a Substack both because I think it's an easier platform for me to use than, um, than Patreon. And um, also because it has a free function. So you can sign up for it. Uh, you can do either the free newsletter, which will have all of my podcasts and various updates, or you can do the paid version, which supports my work. And there you're going to get kind of previews to um, work that I'm doing. So um, you'll get kind of my, my notes along the way of the research projects I'm working on, my favorite passages from books I've been reading, um, working out different ideas. Um, and then you'll also get your, your occasional Saturday missives and playlists. And that's where I'll be kind of hosting all of the more kind of um, exclusive is such an internet word, but that's where we'll do kind of the smaller group stuff, the discussions and the community building around this podcast. And I've loved doing that on Patreon. Substack works a lot better for me uh, as a platform. It's a lot easier. And um, so I'm excited about the switch. So after you listen to this podcast, make sure and go look at the beautiful show notes that I've created for um, Christopher 10 and uh, sign up for either the free or the um, or the paid version. And if you sign up uh, today, then I'll send out an email later this week with kind of more details about how I'm envisioning the Substack working. Um, and that too, I'm gonna, I'm going to always say less than I want to do because my impulse is always to overpromise. But the goal there is to have at least kind of one essay a month for the paid version, and and then doing. Um, my usual Saturday posts and things as well. So go check that out. And um, I would love it if you signed up. Um, and I, um, I look forward to talking with you all. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to my uh, next episode with Christopher Ten, who is a Grammy award-winning composer. And I actually spoke to him around this time last year. And we talked about um, microcosms and macrocosms and how, uh, how many religions and traditions throughout the world use music as a connection to the divine. And in this, in this, uh, we had such a wonderful conversation about that. But in this next episode, we talk about a work that he's done that's kind of different from his other work. It just came out with Vatches 8, if any of you all are um, choral nerds. And it's much more elegiac, much more somber, because it's essentially um, an elegy for lost birds, for birds that have gone extinct over the last 100 years. Um, but it's one of my favorite things he's produced. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope that you will check out my Substack, and I look forward to talking to you all over the next few months as we get Speaking With Joy started again. Thanks for listening.
There will come soft rains and the smell of ground and swallows circling with their shimmering sound and frogs in the pond singing at night and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on a low fence wire. No one will know of the war, not one, will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. I am excited to have a guest on that I have had before, and we we chatted about having this conversation just about a year ago. Uh, it's amazing how, how time flies and how much can be packed into a year. Um, and today I'm welcoming on the show Christopher Tin, who is a Grammy award-winning uh, composer. And today we're going to talk about his new project that will be coming out uh, sometime around when this is released, which is The Lost Birds. So welcome on the show, Christopher. Hey, Joy, thanks for having me back. I just love chatting with you. So it's, it's great that we get to do this again. I know. I so enjoyed our conversation last time. And so I've been looking forward to, uh, to having this one. And um, so what have, you, what have you been up to? Last time we talked, we, we talked about everything in the world, um, myths and calling all dawns and kind of the themes that tied your work together. But what have you been up to in the last year? Boy, well, I I put together this album, The Lost Birds, and it is a collaboration with Voces Eight. And if you're, if any of your viewers don't know who Voces Eight are, they are an amazing singing group um, based out of London, and um, they're an octet, and they're just fantastic singers. And we've sort of been exploring the idea of a collaboration for a, a long time, um, and. You know, when this project was sort of being developed right after I'd finished To Shiver the Sky, which is the last album we talked about, everyone just immediately realized this would be the perfect partnership between Christopher Tin and Voces 8. And so this album was very much composed um, for their voices, but um, with the idea that it could be sung by anyone in the future. And, um, you know, over the last couple of years, it's been a combination of dealing with pandemic-related frustrations and putting together this album, and it's finally coming out into the world, and I'm feeling very excited about it. That's wonderful. Well, I have had the luck and privilege of getting to listen to it over the last couple weeks. I got to download it early, and it's really, I mean, I, I love all of your albums, but it's particularly, I think, easy to listen to might be the way, I know that's an odd way to put it, but I found it it's quite dramatic. It reminds me in some bits, and you can tell me if I'm entirely wrong, but of kind of Rafe von Williams with the kind of feeling of, uh, you, in, in the score, you talk about the tunefulness of, you know, of folk tunes. And it's just really beautiful. I listened, my first listening to it, I was up in Scotland and um, I was sitting in a friend's apartment, they were gone, and I lit a candle, got a cup of tea and listened through it. And it's just a really, aching, lovely, intricate album. Uh, and I'm excited people listen to it. Also, Watches 8, I spent so much of my PhD listening to Watches 8 because it's they're, they're, they're very good, you know, I try not to listen to words in the background while I'm doing writing, but they were somehow very kind of soothing and calming to my mind and kind of their harmonies brought my, my brain into harmony with what I was trying to write. So it was so fun to see you guys partner. So the title of course is Lost Birds. Um, tell us about kind of the vision for the project and what, what 
what you mean by lost birds and and what it's trying to get at. Sure. So um, a, about a decade ago, I scored a documentary about a sculptor who was trying to commemorate five different bird species that had gone extinct, um, five Northern American birds, including the passenger pigeon, the heath hen, the Carolina parakeet, the great auk, um, and the Labrador duck. And I was so sort of like entranced by this, this, this topic, not only of bird extinctions, but by the, the idea of commemoration of mm -hmm. extinction within the arts that, um, you know, when I get inspired like that, I tend to write music that I, that I happen to be very proud of and so I wrote some music that I I was like you know oh this this you know this is I, I like these pieces that I've written for the score maybe I can give them um, a bit of life outside of the score by creating a proper choral concert work mm -hmm. out of one of the main themes of this score and so um, over the next 10 years I'd sort of like tinkered with the idea from time to time i perform bits of the score live in various concerts that I did. Um, and then finally, in the last couple of years, I thought, you know what, now that I've been in touch with both just eight and, you know, mm -hmm. all my ideas are, are fully maturing, let's put this album together. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a core metaphor with this album, as much of my works have some sort of core, you know, secondary layer of meaning, right? But in the case of The Lost Birds, it's very much about extinction. Mm -hmm. And extinction and, um, you know, the ways in which we're impacting the climate are is, is very much on my mind these days. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the central metaphor is this. It's basically the story of the canary in the, the coal mine, right, which was a metaphor stemming from the late 19th century practice of miners mm -hmm. bringing a canary in a cage down to their coal mines. And mm -hmm. if the canary happened to die... If you know it stopped chirping, you didn't hear its sounds anymore, and it died. It meant there was a poisonous buildup of gas in the mines, mm -hmm. and the miners would be the next to die unless they left, right, or they corrected their their actions. And to me, there's no better metaphor about you know mm -hmm. the extinction of birds being a preface for our own um, sort of uh, environmentally induced extinction, you know. So I wanted to basically extrapolate this metaphor and, and turn it into something much more, you know, large scale. And, and that was the, the germ of the idea. And then the ways that it sort of manifested was the 19th century poets and, and all of this other stuff that we'll get into, I'm sure. But basically it's about birds going extinct and how we're next. <laughs> you know, uh, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh since that's uh, a bit of a, a dark theme, but it is interesting compared to many of your other works because, you know, there's always this kind of, um, when I think about Calling All Dawns or Shiver the Sky, there's this kind of glorious sense of optimism and unity. Um, but this one, it's, it, is a, it is a swan song, both for the birds that have perished, but it's also kind of a, it's kind of a warning call. You know, uh, I think that the thing that is really interesting about that metaphor is that you're just embodying it with the music, right? The, the point of a canary is that it will sing if it's okay and it won't sing if it doesn't, right? And so when you use music and you use actual singers to embody this metaphor of are we, are there noxious gases? Are we, are we next? You're just embodying the actual lived metaphor of what a canary in a coal mine is, right? And um, 
and I found that really fascinating throughout the album, the sense of, uh, of beauty, but also of warning and of grief and, um, and the sense of both honoring the birds that have been lost with these kind of almost, um, what's the word I want? There, there's a sense of paying homage to them. Um, it's kind of a, a fun funereal vibe, but also this sense of warning. So it's kind of got all these multivalent things tied in together. Um, do you have something you want to say about that? Yeah, that made it, uh, I will tell you, because you know my work very well, and you, you hit it, the nail on the head, as always, by saying that what I'm sort of known for and what I'm very used to doing is more celebratory, is more optimistic. Mm. Um, so finding the right emotional tone mm. to hit for this type of album was actually very, very challenging for me. Mm. Um, you know, if you tell me write a piece that you know gets people leaping out of their seats and, and pumped up and excited and happy, I, uh, that's that's second nature to me. Striking the right balance between all the things that you just mentioned was a bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, finding finding my my voice within mm -hmm. those sort of emotional terms, um, and so there was a lot of course correction early on. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm writing something, and I actually did a whole test recording session with Voices Eight, where I wrote a bunch of pieces with a bunch of in, a, in different moods and styles and sort of melodic approaches, had them record them and just tried to see what was the right emotional, uh, you know, language to, to use. Um, and I think I, it's interesting because I tackled this project with a less, uh, just less of a sense of sure footing than I have many of my others, precisely because of this, because, mm -hmm. you know, we're in we're striking, we're saying something that I've never actually said before. So how do I want to say this mm. when I put it out into the world? Um, but, you know, you're, you're right in that there was very much a, um, you know, I tried to, to capture all of these different things in, in succession, you know, and, and even try to leave a sense of hope mm -hmm. or something. Mm. It's, it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, there is a lot of doom and gloom, but I mean, there are moments as well that are are maybe more optimistic. And, you know, I, I've never had to really think about um, being careful with how I present things to the level that I had to with this, this album. You know, when you're celebrating something, you know, uh, joy, sorry, the, to use a... A strange metaphor perhaps in the context of our interview joy is sort of unambiguous in a way you know it's it, you know like happiness it's it's a very pure sort of emotion but when you're talking about you know um honoring the loss of birds and also warning that we're gonna potentially follow in their their trail that's a hard thing to find the right words to express i'm gonna say something incredibly nerdy it reminds me of, I remember when I was a kid, I really loved Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you were in, in that. Mm. And I remember when I first watched the movies, there's in the extended edition of Fellowship of the Ring, there's that scene of the, the elves going to the Westlands and they're singing this song that's really, that Frodo's like captured by Frodo and Sam. And it's really beautiful. 
but there's also this kind of mournfulness to it because there's a sense that they are being cast out of the land that they know, but they can't. And that's, I think, um, I think that's, that's a little bit of the tone that some of the music struck to me. Um, it was a bit of the, the elves, it, cause it's so many, it's so many tangled things. It's hope, it's grief over things that have been lost. It's remorse over the fact that we're a part of the things that are lost. You know, it's all these kind of things all tangled up together. Um, and, but it's also just honoring birds themselves. Like we'll, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but the way that you use, which of course is a, is a, um, compositional technique that is well-known and well-beloved to kind of imitate birds and bird song. Mm. Um, who was it? Is it Messian who used, I think, mm-hmm. bird song and the way that he did that and, and the way that he would, and, and for him, it was this kind of representation of the transcendent to the divine. Um, mm-hmm. But there's just so many layers. How do, well, okay, I'll ask you more things, but did, <laughs> did you imitate bird song? Did you find yourself doing things to kind of reference birds themselves? in the uh, a little bit but not a whole lot um i mean i okay so bird song has been imitated i mean i i'm trying to think about the earliest examples i can think of. Uh, i think beethoven did it in his mm-hmm. pastoral symphony number no. 6 i think mahler did it in symphony number no. 1 i might be wrong about that um a lot of the most successful okay messian aside a lot of the most successful imitations of bird song that I've heard were actually played by a woodwind instrument, um, mm. it, you know, like a, a cuckoo being played by a clarinet or something like that. This was written for string orchestra. I didn't have that timbre. It just didn't quite feel right to do quite what Messiaen did. I think, mm-hmm. you know, like it was Quartet from the End of Time, I think. Is, yeah. the, is it? Is it the one that has the bird? Yes. I think, um, it. I think, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting um, at that tie with um, kind of apocalyptic feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's so interesting how it's all sort of woven together, isn't it? Right, um, and and how you know we lean towards birdsong and the idea of birds, you know, in our darkest moments, perhaps. Um, but um, uh, and this is what I love about chatting with you, Joy. Like so many ideas fly around and we jump all over them. And, you know, it's it's great. It's great. And, yeah. Um, but uh, boy, I I I sort of resisted embracing it full on. Hmm. Um, bird song, um, you know, once you try to mimic bird song hmm. within the context of your composition, it, 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 it you know, it, it, it creates a certain musical device that is part of this thing now. It, it didn't ever feel right at any particular given moment for me to do it, but there are subtle allusions to not necessarily individual songs, but like the way that bird songs sort of recede into the distance as birds are flying away and things like mm. that. So in a lot of in a lot of the ways that I, I tackle projects, I mm. I try to find maybe a less representation. I don't want to say less obvious. Yeah, yeah. You know, something a little more abstract. Mm. Uh, way of incorporating ideas, especially if it's something that's sort of, um, you know, a bit of a, like an, an obvious solution, like in, mm-hmm. in terms of bird songs and stuff like that. Yeah, I just incorporate them. Um, but it, it didn't quite feel right with the way that mm-hmm. I've been so metaphorical about so many other different things to suddenly mm-hmm. like s- 
it would feel almost too obvious. song played on a violin. And a little too obvious, yeah, you know, just yeah. a touch. Um, yeah. So, um, okay, let's circle around to the actual setting, because, you know, this is a setting for choral, which means that you're using words, of course, which you usually do. Um, and for, it's a setting of poetry by four women, Emily Dickinson, Christina Rossetti, Edna St. Vincent Millay, and Sarah Teasdale. Teasdale, is that your surname? Mm-hmm. So I, w- I was realizing that Teasdale was actually the one that I'm the least familiar with. Um, ah. which is interesting because that you also say in one of the notes that one of her poems was one of your favorites as a child. Um, but these, so these women all kind of in varying parts of it kind of lived through what we might think of as the industrial revolution, which was a time of kind of unprecedented until now, perhaps, um, environmental change, right? You had, you, you saw, you saw landscapes go from landscapes and economies go from being primarily pastoral and and agrarian to this kind of <clears throat> sudden change and and the whole kind of um, album is premised around like the disappearance of the the passenger pigeon right um, so tell us a little more about how you chose these poems and uh, and and this era because it seems like the whole album is in some way kind of also engaging with this era, both of poetry and of style. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about that. Um, you know, I think you're absolutely right in that a lot of this kind of got wrapped up in my sort of zeroing in on a specific era and wanting to um, take us into the world of that era in a way. Um, and that era is basically the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, in the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that era was the perfect era to fixate on for so many reasons. I mean, for one thing, it was, it was sort of the, the golden age of ornithology back then, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's also the golden age of folk song preservation. I mean, both in North America and, and mm-hmm. in the UK, um, musicologists were scouring the countryside, mm-hmm. writing down all these folk tunes that were just being sung in villages. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're in their own way in jeopardy of being lost, mm-hmm. right? Those particular songs, you know, it goes back to the same metaphor, right? You know, songs being lost, right? Um, and mm-hmm. you know, to sort of like transport us to this world, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I I sort of embrace it wholesale, right? Including using authors of the the era, um, Sarah Teasdale. Who mm. you you know mentioned? She's actually very popular with choral composers, and um, you know there's a reason for that. I mean, her poetry is very—it's simple on the surface, but it's filled with all sorts of emotional depth. Um, it sets very neatly to music. It's all very um, rhythmic. Uh, you know, she, she writes in neat couplets that that rhyme very very clearly. I mean, it's 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 very useful if you're writing a lyrical uh, melody to have poems such as hers. Um, and, uh, you know, she just happens to be a poet that I stumbled across, you know, when I was in my angsty teen years and just loved the combination of uh, simple beauty, but also sadness that mm. you find in a lot of her poetry. Um, for some reason, as an angsty teenager, that really resonated with me, and I always wanted to set some of her poems to, to music. Um, 
And, uh, you know, this particular poem that you're talking about, There Will Come Soft Rains, I mean, it. I also love the context of which it was written, which was, um, you know, basically uh, during World War One, while we were coming out of this uh, great flu pandemic, you know, of 1980, um, with... Uh, you know, basically the annihilation of the human species more visceral than it had ever been before. You know, we're in this moment in history where suddenly we're realizing widespread death is, is by our own hands is, is a very, you know, possible thing. So, um, you know, I saw a lot of parallels between that era and our current era in mm. a way, right? I mean, you know, I think a few months ago, you know, we we're on the brink of another world war. And of course, we were all going through another sort of endemic or pandemic, um, I found it to be sort of the perfect um, allegory for our modern times. And, you know, the warning that I, you know, the, the warning of the birds being lost back then is just as relevant today as it was, you know, back then. So it was a whole bundle of, of reasons why I sort of created it set so firmly in like, you know, this, this, Ninth, late 19th century vernacular. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that that connection with the the gathering of the folk tunes, but of course that was that era as well. And and it's interesting to think about that the kind of loss of folk songs, a lot of which had to do with the land and working the land. One of my friends in Scotland studies the uh, herring songs, which was the the songs that all of the women would sing while they gutted herrings, you know, very, very romantic stuff. Wow. But they sing them, you know, to, to keep rhythm, uh, to talk about all the dudes would be gone for, you know, several months at a time. So they'd be thinking about who they were going to marry or seduce or whatever, you know, so it, but, but there's this whole rich tradition of that because things were done with your hands, they weren't mechanical. And so song was about your environment, but it was also what you did when you were working in it. And of course, as you begin to move away from local communities and away from working the land and working, you know, you, you begin to lose those songs. Um, but I love that that's paired with the loss of birdsong. And uh, I have to say that as a kid, one of the, if you had asked me from ages of like eight to 11, what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said a naturalist because I went through this phase where I like love, I would, I would, we lived in Tennessee at that time. And, um, in this like kind of middle of nowhere uh, town. And I would sit and I would, I would chronicle all, all of the like birds that I saw. And I had a little, you know, I had the nature guide, um, but that was all the rage back then, you know, um, at the exact, that was, that was all, all the rage, I should say in the late 19th century, that was kind of a, an, an era for that. And it was this funny mixture of like interest in science, but it still had this combination with, with, you know, um, something a little bit less abstract than we might think of it now. Um, and the other thing that's interesting, of course, is that that's kind of like at the end of the late romantics. And a lot of the romantics were consciously trying to use poetry to help people get back in touch with nature, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so it's sensible to, to kind of draw on that tradition as you're trying to get people to think about these lost songs, these lost birds, they were, they were consciously seeing almost like a spiritual practice to, to, to use poetry, to rename things, to re, to get back in touch with it. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's it's very true. I mean, the, you know, like what we had what, it, as the Industrial Revolution, you know, took off. I mean, we had sort of this counter movement as well, you know, mm. um, the transcendental transcendentalists oh. in Northern American, for example, you know, like this idea of returning to nature um, yeah. and the, sort of the glorific glorification, uh, romanticization of nature mm. as well. And actually, you brought up another interesting, really interesting thing, as you always do. Um, when you mentioned the the work, like uh, there are these these melodies that were perhaps handed down, um, you know, from, from, you know, generation to generation, there were always things that were sung in the field and perhaps they evolved over the decades, you know, maybe somebody else wrote a new lyric or something like that and worked its way into the song. Um, when I was putting together this album, I was very interested in this idea of oral tradition as well, because we're talking about folk songs, right? And how folk songs evolve via oral tradition. Um, and, Early on in this process, I wanted to incorporate this idea of workshopping things through oral tradition into what I was writing. Mm. And um, the way that I came up with to do that was to basically, if I, if I wrote, for example, a, a melody that I thought might work for a, a piece, I spent a lot of time just singing it absent-mindedly to myself while I was washing dishes or going for a walk or, you know, hanging out with my daughter or something like that, you know, like I would just sort of hum these things. And um, over the, you know, the, the days that I was working these melodies sort of half consciously, um, I would make tiny adjustments to them mm -hmm. that sort of felt normal, you know. I think there is if you imagine like a village full of people singing a song and maybe, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they sort of like massage it and, and, and sort of mm -hmm. shape it over, over generations. It's almost like a pebble being worn by a stream, right? It, mm -hmm. it sort of finds the eventual shape that it was always meant to have mm -hmm. through this iterative process. And so I tried to replicate that as much as I could in the composition process, like write something, sing it to myself. Did it feel natural to sing it this way or this way? Did it feel more natural to put this word on this note or this word on this note? And I mean, that's kind of what we do as composers anyway, but I wanted, um, I wanted a real aspect of it to be sort of the formation of the words and notes on my own lips, you know, as I sort of sang it out loud to myself over, over the days and, and the weeks. So, you know, I was trying to find different ways of embracing aspects of the setting of this album into the actual creative process of making this album. That's lovely. It's like your own little kind of miniature microcosmic um, oral tradition. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, well, and I also, it also, the kind of connection with the land and the pastoral tradition also comes through and it, the album has a seasonal arc, right? It starts, mm. it starts in summer. No, I'm just, I'm dra just drawing a blank. It starts in It spring. does. Certainly, yeah, basically, well, Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, be, you know, the very first words are between the March and April lines. Yeah. Right. Um, so, and uh, yeah, I mean, the idea is, you know, it's, it's the season of birth of life, you know? Mm. Yeah. So it, so that feeling too, kind of the feeling of being going through seasons with it, it's really lovely. So one of the things I enjoyed as I was uh, going through the score 
is the way you talk about various specific kinds of birds and kind of the mythologies around them and, uh, and how they're used. So, so there's a few that I want to talk about. Nightingales, swans, and then is there another one? Larks. Uh, shall we chat about? Sure. Yeah. Pick whichever one you want to say something about first. Uh, let's talk about swans. Why not? <laughs> so tell me about swans. Okay. So I, all right. So as you, as you mentioned, um, there are so many birds and they, many birds have actually different sort of like meanings and mythologies imbued in them. Many, many specific birds, right? Swans were, were one such bird um, that I chose because there's actually, you know, at, at the, like even before choosing what to talk about, there, there, there is a practical dilemma in that there were a lot of birds that simply were not written a lot about in literature and poetry. Try as I might, I could not find a poem about a canary that I liked, especially anything that that basically talked about the whole central premise of the album, right? The canary in the coal mine. Hmm. But the, the swan itself is a well-documented bird and appears in a lot of poetry and mythology. In hmm. fact, it appears in myths across basically the entire sort of hmm. European literary tradition in every culture. Um, and in reading about swans and thinking about them, it dawned on me that there is no bird that gets transformed into a human more than a swan, right? It is the, the quintessential um, creature that both sort of spans the, the bird kingdom and also humans. And to me, that meant it was the perfect sort of bridge bird, so to speak, to, mm -hmm. to sort of convey the idea that we're not only just talking about an album of, you know, this is not just an album about the extinction of birds, it's also an extinction of humans as well. Um, and so, you know, that's why I, I sort of fixated on swans for a little while. Um, but the flip side of that is swans um, are also notable for the metaphor of the swan song. Mm. And the swan song in the literary tradition is, um, well, okay, in, in, in sort of like, in, in the arts or in, in performance arts, a swan song is basically the final performance of, a, of a, you know, a great performer before they retire, right? It's, it's their last great work that they bring into the world. That, that idea is actually rooted in this mythology of the swan being a bird that's silent all its life, but right before it dies, it opens its, its, its mouth and it sings a beautiful song, right? And then it dies. And that's the, the root of the, the myth of the swan song. And so this, uh, this album is broken into two halves, you know, the first half being more or less about birds and the second half more or less being a metaphor for the extinction of, of humans. Um, it felt so right to me to end the first half with a song about swans and having that song be the swan song, so mm. to speak, right? Because then it is the preface to what we're talking about in the second half, which is in fact death. Mm. Yeah. That Whew. was yeah. And it's and it's so that swans. Yeah, that swans. And it's that kind of um bridge between the human and the and the bird. Um uh so Oh, there's also, you know, the nightingale is also one of the most, is, you have a bit about that. Um, I think, is it the poem, is it Rossetti who talks about the nightingales? I think. 
Rossetti talks a lot about nightingales, actually, and and you know, you there's there's no shortage of um, Romantic era poetry that references nightingales. It's a very popular bird, um, and it's very popular in in the context of its duality with uh, the you know the lark itself. The lark mm -hmm. being a daytime bird and the nightingale being a nighttime bird. You often see the two paired together in in poetry, um, and uh, in fact. Both of the the poems that I chose, uh, both Rossetti poems, um, the ones that I set, <laughs> excuse me, um, they both talk about you know these diametrically opposite birds, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> excuse me. Um, the nightingale itself, though, it's it's sort of this uh, this bird. It obviously evokes the night, but it also evokes for the Romantic era poet, you know, everything that the night evokes like um sort of repressed longing and sensuality for example you know um it's it's imbued often with artistic qualities like the nightingale was a bit of a metaphor for a lot of writers and, and artists at the time that this is you know the solitary artist working on their craft in the middle of the night it's a very sort of romantic notion right you mm -hmm. know that you know, the, the superhuman artist, you know, struggling with the, the, the forces of good and evil and their mm -hmm. art, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's very much of the time and it very much resonates with me too. Um, and, um, you know, it, it was, um, I don't know, I was just very just drawn to the poems themselves, you know? Mm, yeah. um, and I love the idea of, 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 you know, the symbolism of, you know, the solitary artist mm. working in the night and so forth. It's, it's very romantic and, and kind of irresistible on some level. Well, and of course, there's there's that famous poem by John Keats, an ode to a nightingale. Um, sure, absolutely. Yeah, uh, which which that kind of evokes as well. And I guess one of the things about nightingales, too, is, you know, with this album being about death and extinction, there's also that sense that you hear nightingales at night, right? You you hear them when it's the most kind of dark and oppressive, and and so there's that sense again of of birdsong being a sign of hope um, or a sign of of beauty in the midst of darkness and and pain. Um, so one of the things that you do, of course, is you have a few places where a melody that you use is then intertwined in the second half. Tell us a little bit about how you do that and how it transforms in, this, in the first versus the second half or what it means. Um, so that's actually a, a, I think a very common musical device in a lot of what I do in that <clears throat> I tend to view these, these sort of large, um, large scale choral works Mm. Um, very thematically and uh, dramatically, I should mm. I should say, it's very dramatically. Um, sometimes kind of operatically. I mean, I, I can't deny that it's rooted in this notion of the light motif, which I I love. Um, and um, I sort of employ it differently every time I do an album, mm. slightly differently. Uh, in the case of this one, uh, you know the 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 main theme that gets reprised throughout the melody, um, it, uh, you know, gets transformed first from one of sort of like soaring beauty to, mm. to one of sort of the, a mournful recognition mm. of the loss of that beauty. 
but then it gets brought back at the end um, in a manner of hope. So as a message of hope. Mm. Um, and, you know, in a way you just sort of alluded to uh, how the, the most important aspect of, of this, which is, mm. um, you know, you had mentioned, for example, the, the, the Nightingale's song mm. in the middle of the night, it, it's sort of like a harbinger of hope in a way, right? It, it's sort of like, even in the darkest, most oppressive moments, hearing that lone mm. voice kind of through that darkness mm. is in itself a symbol of hope. Um, it's alluded to by Emily Dickinson in her poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers, you know, the, the sweetest song in the Gale. Um, and so the ultimate way that I wanted to re sort of convey hope at the, the end of the album was to bring back this melody, which had gone from a transformation of a soaring sort of homage to beautiful flocks of birds to, uh, you know, the, the a mournful dirge mourning the loss of those flocks. I wanted to give it a voice at the end of the album by doing a choral representation of that melody. So the first two iterations are actually purely instrumental and mm -hmm. are the two, only two instrumental movements mm -hmm. on the album. But by the end, we bring back the voices mm -hmm. as another way of conveying the sense that the birds are still here, there mm -hmm. is still hope. I love that. And I love, um, one of the things that struck me when I was both listening and then also reading the, the poems that you set themselves, is that kind of tension between voice and voicelessness and hope and hopelessness that, you know, so many of the, the kind of wistfulness from the poems comes from hearing birdsong um, or, or wanting to hear a lover's voice or not, you know, there's a sense of both what we hear, uh, inviting something to sing to us or not being able to hear something and that being a source of, of sadness. And I noticed that it's notable, of course, that the first, the first song on the album does not have any voices. You know, it's just this beautiful orchestral movement. So then to give, give voices at the very, very end, um, when so much of it has been devoted to kind of these invitations to sing, you know, several poems literally have invitate, you know, invitations mm -hmm. to the birds to sing to them, to give them hope. And then it's almost like at the very end, you have this answer um, of that kind of longed for voice that that has transformed in the very end. And you you use that, I mean, that's gotta be one of Emily Dickinson's most famous poems, um, but it's so lovely. So you really, you literally end on a note of hope as, as, the, as the saying goes, you end with this poem um, by Emily Dickinson, which I think is worth reading very quickly, uh, both because it is on a note of hope, but it's embodying, it is imagining hope as literally as a thing with feathers, as a bird. Um, so the poem goes, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Um, I feel like you couldn't have had somebody write you a, a better <laughs> poem mm -hmm. to conclude. Yeah, so how did you choose this poem? What does this poem mean to you? And, and how did it suit the end of the album? Uh, you know, uh, this was the very first poem that I knew I wanted to definitively include on this album. And I always knew from the very beginning of putting this thing together that I wanted to end on this poem. And I knew also from the very earliest moment that I wanted to 
have this poem be a vocal reprise of the opening movement. So, you know, like right from the start of this project, I, I had my start and my end. Um, it's a beautiful poem. It neatly sums up a lot of, you know, the sort of the metaphors imbued in the album. And that's by design. I mean, you know, if I knew that this was going to be my, my central poem, you know, my big finish, then um, I sort of like, immerse myself in her thinking and and try to carry on that line of thinking. Um, you know, I I love the idea of, of voiceless melodies as well. I mean, there are key moments through the album where it, it becomes uh, wordless, but, uh, uh, you know, still vocal as well. And in fact, the opening minute of Hope is the Thing with Feathers is actually just sung on the word hope. Mm-hmm. very slowly and melismatically and you know when you when you just sing on the word hope it basically gets abstracted to the vowel sound oh right mm-hmm. so the first minute it's it's just hope 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 and the very last word that they sing on is hope as well so you know you're absolutely right hope 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 hope, hope. It's, we're ending on hope mm-hmm. um you know since you mentioned keats earlier uh you know very uh, on my mind through the composing of a lot of this was that line from his ode to a grecian urn which is that heard melodies are sweet and unheard melodies are sweeter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, Keats had a, a very different thing that he was saying than I was. And he was talking about pan pipes, I think, on, on this urn that he was looking at. Um, but uh, this whole idea of wanting to hear melodies that you no longer hear was on my mind. And in thinking about the extinction of birds, one of the things as a musician that's the, the biggest loss of a bird going extinct is that is a song that will never be heard again. Mm-hmm. Whatever bird that bird song was, it's 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 now gone from the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, um, you know, not to be put what I'm doing in presumptuous terms or anything like that, but on, on some level, I wanted to, um, write a piece that would um, sing a song on behalf of a bird whose song was no longer heard. Mm. Um, you know, that, uh, that in my mind, these, these lost songs, the unheard melodies are, you know, there's a mourn, there's a, a tragic sweetness to them as well. And that sort of informed the way that I wrote my own melodies through this album, just a bit of a uh, a, a sweet, lyrical, lovely quality, but with a dark note of tragedy underneath, similar to the way that a Sarah Teasdale poem reads, for example. Mm. Well, I think it's it's beautifully executed, and um, and I love that idea of kind of giving. It's it's honoring a song that has been lost, you know, and there's there's a real value yeah. of that. I think so much. I think so so often we have an impulse to fix things or, you know, inspire people to action. And hopefully this will inspire people to action. But I think there's also a value in saying, this was a precious, beautiful thing that's been lost. And there's a value in just honoring the thing that's been lost, you know? Um, and I think the album does that, it does that really beautifully. So will you get to do any live performances of this? Yes, the world premiere concert is actually at my alma mater, Stanford University. Um, yeah, Voches 8 will be coming out and we'll be performing it at the Bing Concert Hall in February uh, next year, 2023. Um, and I'm excited because it's it's a bit of a homecoming for me as well. And it's a, it's a week of other sort of 
program around sustainability and 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 so forth. Um, that's going to be our that's going to be our world premiere week. In the meantime, Voices is actually performing it uh, virtually in their live from London concert. The stream will come out on October fifteenth, a couple of weeks after the album comes out. Um, and then um, actually, Voices has actually been performing a small suite of movements from it in in various concerts. So they've become the real ambassadors of the work. Um, I mean, it was written for them, you know, so, um, but it, it, it's great that they're, they've added to, to their set lists and, um, you know, they're, they're outperforming it. And the sheet music is available now and hopefully there'll be other performances lined up soon thereafter. Oh, that's very exciting. Well, is there anything I've forgotten to ask you that you would want to tell people either about Lost Birds, Birds in General, or this album? <laughs> You know, I think the other thing that we'd sort of talked about um, mm -hmm. was um, another uh, sort of way in which birds um, influence the compositional process, mm. but in a sort of in visual terms more than mm -hmm. sonic terms. Um, I was very much inspired by flocks of birds mm -hmm. and the absence of them, you know, but also just the way that um, in the late 19th century, um, the passenger pigeon was such a numerous bird that if a flock of passenger pigeons flew overhead, uh, you better watch and run for cover because first of all, I mean, you know, a million birds flying over you, like you're going to get a, you're going to get. <laughs> Got to have an umbrella. <laughs> nailed. Yeah, yeah. Better wear an umbrella, right? But I mean, the, you know, the, the, the sound of a, a million birds flying over you is also a thunderous thing, right? Yeah. Uh, but what I thought was particularly beautiful about those flocks was, um, you know, they would move around in murmurations, sort of like the same way that we see starlings flying around in murmurations. Um, and I sort of became entranced by the visual look of murmurations mm. where flocks of birds you know these yeah they sort of like undulate right and they mm -hmm. sort of like you know sort of writhe around in the sky and if you look at the individual movements of the birds um you know they they all sort of tug and pull at each other in a sort of magnetic sort of way it's like mm -hmm. one bird will maybe sort of move away from the flock and a few others will sort of like follow it but they'll all sort of rejoin the flock and it, it just it's this constant motion, internal motion within the flock, but the overall flock itself has its own unique motion as well. Mm -hmm. And so as I was writing these lines for both the string orchestra and Voce's Eight, I wanted to imbue them with a bit of that sort of magnetic push and pull of mm -hmm. different birds within a flock. And so the way that I wrote the lines, a lot of times one singer deviates a little bit from the group and maybe tugs another singer behind them a little, but they all sort of rejoin. And maybe, you know, one voice takes an extra couple of beats to sort of land on a resolved chord or something like that. But the, the motion of my musical lines was very much inspired by this idea of individual birds in a flock, each possessing their own motion, mm -hmm. but as a group, you know, working together and, and, and moving in a, a specific direction. Mm. That might be a little bit sort of a, you know, composition, no. you know, graduate seminar or whatever, right? <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit like, 
you know, that's that's one of the areas where I got my inspiration right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought I would mention it. I'm, I'm glad you I did. Thought it's kind of cool. <laughs> it's very cool. Um, and it's a good reason for people to go get the score, or get the sheet music so they can look at that um, on, on that's the page. That's right. Um, yeah, no, that's, I love that. And I, I love also that you stayed away from the maybe mildly um, overly representational way of, of referencing birds, which would be the song, and then said opted for this kind of metaphor of movement. Um, and, you know, if, if people listening to this have never seen a murmuration, go Google murmurations, because they really, I mean, they're absolutely incredible. The first place I saw one was actually in when I, when I moved to Scotland, because you have these murmurations of starlings, I think around October, I don't know if they migrate or what, but it's, it's absolutely incredible. Unlike anything you've ever seen. And it's remarkable to think that that used to be more normal with other birds, right? It used to be just a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's absolutely magical. Like, you know, it looks like, almost looks like quicksand or something, the way that the, that, you know, the, the shadows and they, how do they know? I remember thinking this, I remember thinking, how do they follow each other like what I know. how do they know it's 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 absolutely remarkable and it's, this yeah. go ahead no, no go ahead no, no no I was gonna say I mean I, I remember reading an article about scientists trying to figure out how to design freeway lanes for maximum efficiency by studying the way that birds flew around next to each other I mean it's one of these things where nature has always provided the right answer to things but we're, we're still trying to unlock those secrets um yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, you're right. I wish I could see a murmur. We just don't have them in Los Angeles, right? Uh, we barely have any, any nature around here. Um, but it's like, I think to future, to future um, sort of like uh, to future generations, um, the best way I could like explain what a murmuration looks like is, is like the most fantastic drone show you've ever seen, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just kind of an amazing thing. Or if you've ever seen like a video of fish in, uh, you know, like a ton of fish, a school of fish. Yeah. It looks like that, but in the air and the way that the light catches their feathers in different ways. And no, it's, it's amazing. Um, and I'll, I'll add my last, my, my, something I want to add to this conversation, which is that when we think, you know, this, this album really kind of calls us to think about and, and worry about, you know, our, our world, the world that we live in, um, and, and the environment. And I think that um, when you first told me you were doing this project, I asked you if you'd heard of another project, which is called The Lost Words, right? So you got The Lost Birds and The Lost Words. Which <laughs> is, uh, it's a book by Robert McFarland where they basically, um, they did a survey of elementary school age um, children and discovered that they had lost the words to describe basic things in the countryside that 20 years before children had been able to describe. So things like, this may sound exotic if you're not in, you know, the UK, but like Kingfisher, which is like a fairly, that's a thing that you see, Kingfisher, adder, otter, all these things that children didn't know what they meant. Um, and he observed that that loss in vocabulary, loss in words and names, you know, was, was synonymous. It was happening at the same time, synchronous with the loss of those things in the natural world, mm-hmm. right? That there was a decline in the ability to name them also accorded with the decline in the ability and in their health and in the environment. So we created this beautiful book that um, Nate, but is like the lost words and then has images of those things. But to me, um, during the lockdown, one of the, gosh, which is now almost 
I guess that's nearly three years ago. Oh no, can that be right? Two years? I guess it is. Two it was 2020. Yeah, yeah, it was nearly three years 2020. ago. 2020. Yeah. Um, during the first lockdown um, in St. Andrews, that's where I was at the time in Scotland. Um, I got really into because there was literally nothing else to do. Um, bird watching. And so I got I got a little guide and um and I could tell you every bird that passed through my little garden and the sea in St. Andrews. And I think there's something very special about being able to name something, to be able to know its name, to know its song. Um, and so I would encourage people after you listen to this album and you're feeling passionate about birds and bird song to go out and and start try try to be able to name some of the birds that are in your world. You know, it's it's a way of coming back into contact with with our earth and our our world. And I think when we know the name of something, we we feel more passionate about wanting to protect it, wanting to care for it. So that's my my little pitch for saying people should listen to your album, um, look at the undulating musical rhythm of the birds on the score, and then go outside and mm -hmm. learn the names of some of the birds in your backyard because it is both very enjoyable and as I also I also think a part of um, energizing ourselves to to do something and to care for our, for the world that we live in. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree, wholeheartedly agree. And I mean, that's a great way to, to wrap this up. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Chris. Can you tell people where they can find your music? And if you have any other projects that you're working on, um, you can give us a teaser of that or just point us to Lost Birds and where people can find your music. Yeah, you can find the Lost Birds on any platform, um, anywhere where music gets heard. Uh, September 30th is when the album comes out. And if you want to learn more about the creation of the process, um, you can visit my website, uh, www.christophertin.com. Um, I'm looking forward to a wide slate of different projects coming up, actually. And actually, Joy, we've been talking about one of them as well, because uh, you're very much a part of my brain trust now. And I love chatting with you about various ideas I have. So be prepared for more emails coming <laughs> coming your way saying, Joy, what do you think of this? You got any ideas here? What do you think? Um, but uh, you know, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hope to be able to share some of these ideas with you again very soon. So we'll see, you know. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And everybody make sure to listen to Lost Birds and check out um, this album and all of Christopher's other albums uh, wherever you like to listen to music. <laughs>